0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, UPC.org. Well, pride hurts, not the good pride, but the bad pride. And it hurts us and it hurts everybody else. It hurts God because God loves us and never intended us to be people who degrade ourselves or those around us by being less than the people that God longs for us to be. And as we will see today, when we do that, we act in pride, and God will have none of it. And God's love, when fully unleashed on us, hurts, and it heals, and it restores all at once, in that same way that Nebuchadnezzar becomes kind of an everyman for us in terms of his story of pride and our story as well. So as we begin, let's pray. God, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds. Help us to see ourselves in your story that we might see your redemption in ours. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed that for some strange reason, we're all drawn to wrecks? What I mean by that is like when you're on I-5 and there's an accident, everyone slows down to gawk at it. And we get mad when people do it, but when we drive by, we do the same thing. We all kind of look and see what's going on. We just can't help it. It's kind of the same way that we feel about, I think, some of the failure and implosion stories of the Bernie Madoffs or the Ted Haggertys or Miley Cyrus's of the world. We get sucked into the Where Are They Now videos. You know you've done it before. The the once famous person who's sort of fallen in some way or another. It's like we're paparazzi for human failure. We strain to get a picture of someone else's disaster, to exploit it for our own benefit, as if somehow comparing ourselves to that picture of failure will will make us feel better about who we are. At least, well, I didn't do that, and we fill in the blank with whatever it is that somebody else has done or experienced that makes us feel less bad about us. At the core of such tendencies is pride. Now, pride's a little hard to define, But to borrow the words of former Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, like pornography, we know it when we see it. The problem is I rarely recognize it in me, but I can easily see it in you. (laughs) Pride draws us to make comparisons that prove that someone else is at the very least worse than we are. So if you've ever compared yourself with someone else in an effort to make you feel better about yourself, you're guilty of pride. I almost want to do a show of hands. Anyone not guilty? (laughs) Because I would send you home. Okay, I'm glad I'm in such good company. And there I go again. I'm so glad. I'm so proud to be in such good company. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, our case study today comes from the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, And I encourage you to read the whole story It's um, in the first few chapters of Daniel. But for this morning, we're going to bop around a little bit. So if you would take that Pew Bible and turn to page 720, Daniel chapter 4, we're going to gawk at Nebuchadnezzar's records a little bit. And then we're going to piece together how it happened and how God turns this from a story of a personal crash into a life of grace. Let me read for us from 4.28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you've learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed in the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. How's that for the word of the Lord? An animal. The great king who conquered the Israelites and took them into captivity. The man who built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. He's truly the most powerful man in the ancient Near East. And now he thinks he's a cow. Well, what happened? Let's slow down as we drive by and take a look. It goes back to when God chose Nebuchadnezzar as someone through whom he intended to work. God blessed him, and he made Nebuchadnezzar prosperous because God had a plan to reveal himself to the Babylonians. Now, understand, the plan was to allow Nebuchadnezzar to take the Israelites in, captive in what became to the Israelites an overused plot device known as Exile. Exile is basically when the Israelites get sent away from their home against their will, and theologically speaking, if the Israelites aren't willing to go and reveal God's glory to their Babylonian neighbors, then God seems perfectly comfortable with allowing the Israelites to be captured by them so that they can. not And this is precisely what God does when he allows the Israelites to be captured by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon. God wants to demonstrate that he is so much more powerful and gracious than the Babylonian gods. But the problem is, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that God's behind his success. And when we find him in chapter 3, a little bit earlier in the story, he's been busy making a 90-foot statue of either himself or his favorite God. The text is kind of unclear. And he insists that when the band strikes up, everyone needs to take off their hat and bow down and worship it. Chapter 3 reads like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they heard the man strike up, they were instructed to fall down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship immediately will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, many of us are familiar with the story that follows. The three young Israelites constricted Into Nebuchadnezzar's service, know that that silly statue isn't God, and they refuse to worship it. And sadly, like we so often do, when people don't bow down to Washington, I mean Nebuchadnezzar, silly me. I mean, (laughs) I know where I live. I mean, our ideal image of ourselves, or maybe the stuff that we think is important. Nebuchadnezzar sets out to destroy those three guys, through the contempt and through words that degrade because their opinion isn't his own, and he throws them into the fire. That's how we deal with people who don't agree with us. That's pride. My friend Paul, who's also a pastor, jokes that he has a very centrist view of life. He says, I believe that everyone to the right of me on any particular issue needs to lighten up. And everyone to the left of me on a given issue needs to get it together. <laughs> oh, Paul, that centrist view, the view that puts me at the center. We're all pros at this. And whenever we do do it, we're guilty of pride. We do it when we put ourselves at the center of how we whatever we think about. Maybe it's national or international politics or how we approach other religions or even other views within our own church. And it kind of looks like this. This is how it plays out. If you read the Bible more literally than I do, or if you apply scripture maybe more liberally than I do, you're in contempt of court, the court of my opinion. In pride, I might consider you an idiot, or maybe you're not even a Christian at all. Because I have spiritual x-ray eyes, and I can see right to a person's soul, and I totally know where they stand with Jesus. Oh, shoot. Or maybe you don't care for the earth the way I believe that we should. Or you don't share my views on how the government's using its taxpayer dollars. You might be on thin ice with me. Or if you're foolishly overlooking God's mandate to care for the poor... You obviously don't understand what it means to be a good steward, to be blessed, to be a blessing. You might be a Christian, but you're not a very good one. It's not always strictly about matters of faith either. Let's talk about war, gun control, immigration reform, same-sex marriage, the death penalty, global warming. Have I offended you yet? It's not that we can't have opinions about what we believe, and it's not that we shouldn't believe. But when any of our particular ideas become doctrine, become our God, and our view requires that we hold someone else in contempt because they're different from us, we're guilty of pride. When we stop loving people, we're guilty of pride. It's not the position that you hold, it's how you hold it that becomes a problem. And when we're compelled to denigrate and condemn anyone who isn't just like us, sending them off to a fiery furnace of judgment, of our opinion, that's sad. And the sad thing to me is that the church isn't any better at humility when it comes to hard topics. In fact, sometimes we're worse than the world around us. Because my neighbors know that I'm a pastor, they feel free to give me their opinions on all things Christian It's actually very fun. Um, And I got into a conversation about marriage with um, the two folks that live next door. We're talking about marriage and remarriage. And one day, one of them said, why is it that Christians feel like they hold to the keys to the kingdom when it comes to marriage? They're all right about it. Statistically speaking, isn't the divorce rate just as bad in the church as it is outside? Ouch. In many ways... It's easier to disagree with non-Christians. I 'd like to disagree with my neighbor, but I think she might be right. But I think it is easier sometimes to disagree with non-Christians because when we disagree with each other, we start not only do we disagree, we start throwing salvific veracity at each other, right? Well, you're not really a Christian if you believe that, and we finish the sentence with our view on everything of. From Israel and Palestine to marriage, sexuality, abortion, fill in the blank. We're so busy destroying each other to prove how right we are that we've lost God's mission. We've lost sight of it. That mission to so love others that they would run to know the source of that love. As if worshiping the view I hold is so much more important than worshiping the God who invites us all to belong to him. I was gently reminded the other day that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But there are many, many ways to Jesus. And my way isn't the only way. A few years ago, I was asked by some students at my alma mater... What, you know, 40-something me would say to 20-something me as they sat there wide-eyed and excited. And and for a moment, I had this little out-of-body experience because I thought, oh my gosh, 20-something year old me wouldn't even think that 40-something year old me is a Christian. I'm pretty sure. I'd probably tell 20-year-old me to lighten up. And I'm sure 60-year-old me will tell me to lighten up today. We're in touch with our inner game of thrones. We believe that we have to destroy anyone who threatens our place on the seat of rightness and glory. We're defensive, we're aggressive, we're neurotic with intermittent delusions of grandeur. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the thing, God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know, dude, you are never gonna sit on the throne of the most high God. And you're never going to be supreme judge. And that's actually a really good thing for you. He tries to get this through to him when he delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar kind of misses it. Or he forgets it. And his sleep becomes uneasy. And his dreams are disturbing. In one of those dreams... God warns Nebuchadnezzar that he's going to get cut down to size if he doesn't stop uttering this blasphemy, believing that he's greater than God. His dream, which takes up most of chapter 4, is so beyond his capacity to understand, to comprehend, that he calls in poor Daniel to interpret it for him. Now, as Lynn would say, bless his little heart, Daniel sees this right away. He knows exactly what's going on. And it's And verse 19 says, he's severely distressed and terrified. And no wonder any of us would be given the awesome privilege of being invited to be that honest with someone. And so Daniel pleads, please don't kill the messenger, as he tells Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream. In chapter 4, verse 29, we see that while Nebuchadnezzar seems to have been trying to take his pride in check for 12 months, for about a year, he just can't help himself. And that by verse 30, he once again concludes, magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty. And he finds that his pride has gotten the best of him, and God graciously interrupts his fruitless attempts to change himself and unleashes his wrath on him and turns him into Someone who thinks they're a cow. That's God's grace for you. Well, stay with me. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you're familiar with the story of Eustace Scrub. He's a boy who C.S. Lewis writes deserved his name. And in the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we watch his transformation from a beast of a child into an actual beast, A dragon. And what's so lovely about Lewis's account is that it's very close to the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Eustace is kind of a snob, and he spends most of the first few chapters of the book judging and belittling others whose views are very different than his own. He has no friends, and he complains when people are kind to him because their efforts are beneath him. Ironically, Aslan, he doesn't know this, but Aslan has called him into this new world, this new land, because Aslan has a plan for him. But he can't see it, so he complains about being on this boat, this horrific boat, with these awful animals. So then, through what looks like a curse, but it's actually an act of grace, Eustace becomes on the Eustace becomes on the outside what he actually is on the inside, as inhuman as he is on the inside. He turns into a dragon, and when he realizes it, it frightens him, and he. He begins to weep. Suddenly, he sees everything differently. His companions, his choices, his attitude. And he finds himself longing to be with those that he had once alienated. He longs to be delivered. And he meets Aslan, but he doesn't even know it's Aslan. And he attempts to shed his nasty animal nature by himself, but it doesn't work. And so here's the account that Eustace gives to Edmund. He says... I thought if I could just get in the water and bathe, it would ease the pain. Whoops. Yeah, it would ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself. And my scales began coming off all over the place. And I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like I was a banana. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water... I looked down, and I saw that they were, they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then I had another smaller suit on, underneath the first one. So I scratched and tore again. Well, exactly the same thing happened. And as I saw myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, you'll have to let me undress you. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But he pulled the beastly stuff right off. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much more thick and dark than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me. And he threw me into the water. And it hurt. And then I saw why because I had been turned back into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out, and he dressed me. Lewis has just described the same holy love, God's wrath, that's unleashed on Nebuchadnezzar. Not because God hates him or wants to destroy him, but because God because God hates his pride and he wants to love him and to have so much more for him. And just as miracles are a redemptive fast forward to God's ultimate kingdom hopes of wholeness or healing for us, wrath is also a redemptive fast forward. But it takes us to the ultimate consequences of our choices. As if God is saying, my son, my daughter, if you continue in your pride to take this road, This is where it ends. Do you really want to come here? Do you really want that? Well, the truth is that pride dehumanizes us, turns us into little dragons, and it makes us less than what God intends us to be. And so God allows Nebuchadnezzar to experience the full measure of his proud choices, and he's brought low as an act of grace. And I dare say that many of us have eaten grass in our day. Pride hurts. It hurts us, and it hurts others. And let me say that there's another side to pride as well. We don't really have time for it. It's probably best exemplified. My friend Scott was a pastor, and he preached one Sunday, and he was really miserable with the outcome of that sermon. He mulled over it all day, complained and groused, and finally his wife said, Scott, enough. Nobody thinks about you nearly as much as you do get over yourself. (laughs) That also is pride. Pride hurts. And when we face it, it's excruciating. In church, we have work to do, as my neighbors would be happy to tell you. And if you're brave enough, I'd encourage you to ask those outside the church what they see of pride in the church. You might learn something. And if you're braver still, I'd encourage you to ask those around you in the pews what they see of pride in you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And also I'd encourage you to get in touch with your inner Daniel. Be brave enough to speak the truth in love because when we do, we are rescued. Others are blessed and God is glorified. And in the end, Eustace is restored, and Nebuchadnezzar is also restored. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 4 and read with me verses 34 to 37. This is how Nebuchadnezzar's story ends, and I dare say it's how our story is meant to end as well. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praise and honored the one who lives forever for his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth there is no one who can stay his hand or say to him what are you doing At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are truth, and his ways are justice. And he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would humble us as individuals and as a church. Help us to take a heart like yours that doesn't need to put other people down to feel confident, that can believe without forcing our opinion on others, and that can invite people to come and see and to be changed in the process. Lord, fill us with the love that you have that others might know you more fully for having known us. We pray this in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.